0: Hi, Sandra. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me to be on. Of course. So I watched your Goalcast video and I knew I had to reach out to you when I heard you say, I took what I thought was my greatest curse and I turned it into a blessing.
1: Oh, I'm so glad that resonated with you. It certainly took me a long time to get to
0: that perspective, but I'm so happy that I'm here. Absolutely. That is what this podcast is about. It's, you know, everybody has something in their life that happens to them and they can either look at it like it is their greatest weakness or they can look at it and learn from it and turn it into something fantastic. So you are exactly that. Yeah, I'm a firm believer
1: that You know, any suffering that I may have experienced or hard times that I experienced in my life, as we all do, um, is not senseless. It's not for nothing. Like, I'm always looking back and looking for meaning so that I don't call it um, suffering. I call it um, meaning in my life. And where are the pearls of wisdom that I can harvest from those times so that um,
0: they weren't for nothing? Mm, Well said. I love that. So your Goalcast video started with you saying, I wanted a strong man and a family by my side because I grew up in a chaotic environment. Mm-hmm. Did you believe that yeah. that's how you would find your happiness?
1: Um, I guess like all little girls, uh, you know, I grew up in a home that was chaotic and violent and there was a lot of mental illness and my mother suffered from bipolar disorder and from morbid obesity, uh, driven by food addiction. So my mom was not emotionally available to me, um, and that meant that you know I was very much neglected as a child. I you know no one really made sure if I had breakfast before I left for school. No one made sure that I was bathed or wearing clean clothes or anything like that. Um, and so, and, and, and it's so interesting to me because I have an eight-year-old daughter now, and I really didn't understand that I was neglected until I had my own child and I had my own routines of bath time with my daughter and story time and all that connection that I experienced with her and continue to experience with her. And I went, "Wow, wait a minute. Nobody, nobody did that with me. And so, you know, not having a mother that was emotionally available and having a father that made me feel unsafe and there was violence in the home. Yeah. I, I you know, I just wanted my safe, secure home. I wanted, Um, I guess the Hallmark card with the, you know, the husband by your side and the baby in the carriage and, you know, beautiful home at Christmas. And that's something that I always had wanted and thought that could make me happy. Um, And also something that had pretty much eluded me my whole life. I say that laughing. It's it's, uh, probably the uh, next big nut for me to crack and hopefully help the world with.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny how the thing that we feel like we want so much, it can actually subconsciously scare us into not ever letting it happen.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I can really,
0: that's a very powerful
1: statement because I can identify with wanting something so much and then thinking, well, what if I get it and then I lose it? The pain of losing it. Is, is too great. So maybe it's better I never have it. So it's some really um, not clear thinking, you know, it's so important to talk about these things and air them out. Because when they're left in the recesses of our minds, they make perfect sense. And then when you say them into the world, we go, wow, we take a look at those words, and we go, well, that makes no sense
0: when Absolutely. I share it. But in my head, it makes sense. Let's talk about your marriage for a minute. I know that on the Goldcast video you talked about your husband the moment that you both locked eyes and you were like no 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 no! this is not going to be my reality did you live with that reality for a while or was at that very moment did you know okay he has something inside of him and i'm leaving now before it comes out
1: yeah so it was actually my fiance
0: um I just want to make it clear
1: because I, we weren't married, but I was married in my 20s. But this was my fiance. And yeah, I, I had made that decision in that moment. Um, and then I thought, I second guessed myself. I thought, you know what? My daughter's first Christmas is coming up. And how can I leave her father before Christmas? Um, you know, I need to, to somehow give her some sort of magical Christmas because, you know, she was eight months old. And she was going to remember it for the rest of her life. Again, these things that you decide in your mind that make no sense. Um, And we did hang on uh, past Christmas, and we split up when she was 10 months old. And this incident probably happened when she was about four months old. And those six months were probably some of the worst six months um, that I've ever experienced in a relationship. And it was one of the most dreadful Christmases of my lifetime. So, you know, me thinking that I could give my daughter a whole family at Christmas turned into just... You know, a mom who was so depressed and I turned to food again because, you know, I identify as a food addict and I started using food again and I was in a full blown relapse and I was, in fact, emotionally unavailable for my daughter because I was in so much pain. And there I was repeating history, exactly what my mom uh, did with me. I was now doing with my daughter so desperately unhappy because, you know, I I'd fall victim to those television shows at Christmas, <laughs> the, you, you know you're supposed to be together and it's supposed to snow softly outside. And you're supposed to have a beautiful tree and open presence together and somehow create some magic. Uh, but that was not meant to be. So that was a very hard lesson to learn. Um, I now ha- try to live by my instincts and I try to live by what my gut is saying to me and listening to it very carefully. Um, and I probably would have saved myself and, and my daughter a lot of heartache had I just left then when I decided to.
0: What was the moment when you decided that enough is enough?
1: I would say after the holidays, um, I, I had a really honest, open heart to heart with my fiancé. I just said, uh, you know what? You're not happy. I'm not happy. Let's just figure out a way to co-parent. And he was able to admit that he was not happy. And we just, you know, approached it from a place of non-judgment and no blaming. I mean, we spent enough time fighting and blaming and pointing fingers, and now it's just over. So let's stop that. It's pointless. And let's move forward, and we could agree on loving our daughter and wanting the best life for her. And so I think that was right after the holidays, and you know, of course, I gave him some time, maybe six weeks or so, to figure out where he would move. So that's probably why, you know, it happened, uh, you know, a short time after that, and. And, you know, at first the breakup was not easy and we went through some really difficult, difficult times and a lot of healing had to happen. But now my daughter is eight and I'm happy to report that we have an excellent uh, co-parenting relationship where we, for the first time ever, my gosh, I mean, I've, I've known this person now for 12, 13 years. First time ever, we, we, we speak respectfully to each other, we honor each other, we honor our commitments and we're working well together.
0: That's wonderful, but it was to a process. <laughs> you know what? Overnight. It, it right and imagine where you'd be today if you stayed just to keep the family Aw. together. How yeah, much it would pain have. that everybody would have gone through? Oh, exactly.
1: Yeah, I, it would have been awful.
0: What would you say to a woman who's in a place and all she's ever wanted was to have that happy, perfect family together and? You know, everybody's got issues. Some people drink too much. You know, sometimes people have a temper, but we still will keep our family together. What would you say to that woman who just doesn't know the right move to make or has a feeling, but she's scared that she's going to make the wrong choice? Yeah, it's a really tough
1: place to be, and especially when I hear women say, I'm staying together for the sake of the kids. And here's the truth about that, or at least what I believe to be true. When you stay in a marriage that is dysfunctional, maybe abusive, unhappy, what you're teaching your children who are watching you carefully, children never do what we say, and they're just watching us, uh, you're teaching your children, when you're unhappy and miserable, you stay. When someone is abusive to you, you stay. When life is just beyond um, unhappiness and I, you live in it every single day, you stay. That's what you're teaching them. So you as a parent, I as a parent need to show and be an example of the life I want my daughter to live. So I want my daughter to grow up and have a life where she loves herself. She cares for herself. She lets people in who treat her well. She treats people well. She brings the best of herself everywhere she goes. The only way to teach her that is to show
0: her. Absolutely. So you and I, have similar backstories. So I have a nine-year-old and uh, her father and I were engaged and it was a very, very toxic relationship. Both good people away from each other. (laughs) We have a fantastic Mm -hmm, relationship now because of her. You know, a lot of people, parents are, I don't understand why parents argue and bicker and they don't get along. It's, Because of the issues that they have with each other, they're not thinking about the kids as much as they say they're thinking about the kids. But I made the decision I'm leaving because I don't want her thinking that, one, it's normal for anybody to ever talk to her like that or for her to think that it's okay to ever treat anybody like that. And
1: Mm -hmm.
0: not that he was wrong or I was wrong. It's just People don't treat each other like that. You're supposed to treat each other with love and respect and build each other up. I'm a better mom because I made that hard decision, even though every single day for probably a year, I beat myself up and I cried and I thought that I was screwing her up.
1: I know it is it is tough. and I also think it's important to realize that happy families come in all different scenarios and all different combinations. And so... You know, in my cast video, I I went on to say that, by surprise, my sister, you know, unexpectedly left her husband, which was very good for her, and her and I moved in together. And her and I created this really peaceful, calm, loving, supportive home for my daughter. So, yeah, she didn't have a mom and a dad, but she had a mom and an aunt. Uh, who just adored her every single day. And, and me and my sister would often sit at night and marvel because we had grown up in that same chaotic, 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 violent home and think, wow, it's just so peaceful. It's such a peaceful home. You know, my sister and I never really bickered. We didn't fight. We we just got along. And we were respectful of one another. And that was modeled to my my daughter. Um, You know, she didn't, because cause I left her dad when she was 10 months old, she actually had to learn uh, through her friends that moms and dads live together. Right? It was very interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she didn't realize that, right? Her norm was you live with your aunt and your mom. And so when she saw it, it was like, what? Your dad lives with you? That's kind of weird. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know what? There's so many families that are blended now, and it really is an, it's normal. Did you have a certain moment when you knew that you were going to be okay?
1: Um, I would have to say within, I was very fortunate within a couple of weeks, all the things that I feared. So I, you know, like I mentioned, uh, my daughter was 10 months old. I was on maternity leave. And so there were a couple of things kind of worrisome that were heavy on my shoulders. How was I going to go back to work? I worked at a consulting firm. And so that would require longer hours and travel. And I was concerned about going from two paychecks to one, right? And, you know, children at 10 months old, they have a lot of needs and they are very expensive. And, you know, I just didn't know how I was going to just do it all by myself. And within, I would say, two, three weeks, um, I had, you know, the the firm that I was working for by some miracle called me up and said, you know, we know you haven't been really happy here for a long time. I've worked there for 15 years. We'd like to offer you a severance package. So the severance package was incredibly generous, and it was going to allow me to stay home for another 18 months with my daughter. So I was like, wow, like, okay, money's not going to be an issue, and I don't have to go back to work. That's pretty amazing. And then having my sister knock on my door literally at 1 in the morning saying she was going to leave her husband, that now meant I wasn't going to raise my daughter alone. So within weeks, all the things that were keeping me stuck uh, had been released. It all figured it out because sometimes we don't want to make the jump until we know what the answer is, or as I call, it, we want a guaranteed net. And if I can't see the net, then I'm not jumping. Um, and there's a lot of boldness that comes when you jump and you don't see the net. That's really faith. You know, people often talk about having faith, and I always say, well, rubber hits the road when you don't have the answers and you have faith that it's going to work out, but you can't see it. There's no, it's not written in the on black and white paper. So that, for me, was a real test of my faith, and, um, like, every time in my life, when I rely on faith, it comes through. It's never failed me.
0: You know what? I say that a lot, that everything worth living for is on the other side of fear.
1: Mm -hmm. Once you Mm -hmm. take
0: that step into the unknown, it's just like everything falls into place. You've been looking for that certain piece of that puzzle and you've been searching everywhere and you're trying so hard. Granted, it's right in front of your face, but you're blind to it. And once you go around the corner and you just go a different direction, it's like, wow, it was there the whole time just waiting for me. When you decided to become a food addiction specialist, you weren't some hundred-pound fitness expert that wanted to help overweight people. You yourself had lost a hundred pounds and knew the struggles of food addiction. Was mm-hmm. and and that also came from jumping, right? Because um, that you know
1: being able to be on salary for uh, eighteen months, I was able to go back to school and get retraining, and that's where you know how we started the interview. That I took what I would consider the greatest curse in my life, which was being in my twenties. Uh, And I would have been classified as morbidly obese and my eating was out of control. In fact, my whole life was spinning out of control. I wish I could tell you it was just my eating, but I was in a bad marriage. So that was someone else, (laughs) a bad marriage. Um, You know, he had his bad behaviors, but I had my food and I could binge eat and we kind of left each other alone. And I was taking care of my mom with no boundaries at all. So I was just trying to save her And when you try to save someone who's pretty sick, sometimes you get pulled under with them. Mm -hmm. And I finally was off work for three months. I had a complete nervous breakdown. So I took, you know, I took one of the lowest points in my entire life. um, And those three months off to really catch my breath and get a perspective. And I rebuilt my life. Um, the, you know, I did lose hundred pounds over 14 years ago and the doctors tell me only 2% of the population is able to do this. Only 2% of the population is able to lose 50 pounds and keep it off for more than five years. And so uh, I'm a little bit of an anomaly and there's many people out there just like me. And the reason that I've had this success is because I treated my eating and my weight as an addiction. I didn't, I didn't look for a diet. I didn't look for some magic potion or pill. Um, I just looked at it as an addiction. And the best addiction treatment that we have is to eliminate the drug. So for me, the drug are ultra-processed foods. You know, food addiction is a bit of a misnomer because nobody's really addicted to chicken, broccoli, celery, like (laughs) real foods. We're not addicted to them. We're addicted to food-like substances. A Dorito, a donut, there's no food in there. If you look at all the ingredients, it's far Mm -hmm. more chemical than food. Um, So I needed to eliminate these chemically engineered foods that are made to be highly addictive. Understand that the sugar industry has, it's a billion dollar industry. They put a lot of science into making sure that you become addicted to their products.
0: Why? Girl, you are speaking my language. Yes. (laughs) I'm so glad you're saying this.
1: Yeah. Because they want the greatest share of your wallet, right? They're no different than the cigarette industry. The cigarette industry knew they were making a highly addictive product that made you sick they knew it right uh but didn't matter because we're talking big business and it's the same with the sugar industry they know it's addictive because they're putting science into it to make sure it's addictive and they know it makes you sick and in fact they have an invested interest in the population suffering with obesity because somebody suffering with obesity is going to buy more of their product than someone who isn't
0: yeah and they're winning i read that something like 30 to 50 percent of people are chemically addicted to food meaning yeah. they're addicted yeah. to the processed foods and the sugars and the flour and those kind of things yeah
1: yeah so some of the most addictive foods on the on the planet pizza pizza is number one and the reason pizza is number one is because it layers sugar fat starch salt right it's the perfect bomb of all three then potato chips right so people are always saying to me once I start on the bag I can't stop and they have so much shame and I'm like don't be shameful they're manufactured to be that way that's not your fault like you're not supposed to stop until the bag is done and chocolate of course uh, is another round up the top three most addictive foods in the world um, yeah so I treated my eating like an addiction I got rid of my drunk foods that's all I did so I didn't go on a diet. I got rid of foods that act like triggers. Once I start, I can't stop. Often lead to a binge, definitely processed. Um, and then I, I slowly uh, introduced exercise. So understand, you know, I was 29 years old. And I'm suffering with morbid obesity. And all I can do is walk for 15 minutes With because I had severe back pain. I'm only 5'2". So you can imagine 5'2". And, mm-hmm. you know, I was uh, like 260. That's pretty big. And I couldn't walk for more than 15 minutes. Um, that turned into 20 minutes, turned into half hour, and then one day I remember it so clearly. I was you know, speed walking, thinking I think I can jog, I think I can jog, and then I was off jogging, and I did my first 5K, 10K, and then a half marathon. And understand that didn't happen overnight. You know, it's so tiring to see media portray people losing weight in a short amount of time, going from half marathon in 30 days that are unattainable, and. Uh, you know, everybody's familiar with The Biggest Loser, the the reality TV show where people go on and lose maybe 100 pounds in six months, 120 pounds in six months. Well, Harvard uh, did a, a, a research on these these participants in this reality TV show, and what they showed was they destroyed their metabolism. So now, in order that for them to maintain that lower weight, they have to eat something like a 1,000 calories a day, 1,200 calories a day, or they'll gain it all back, which most of them have. So it's very dangerous television out there. You know, I took over two years to lose the weight. I never got on a scale again. So I always say my weight is none of my business, because that number never made me happy. Um, and so it could be more than 100. I don't know. And it doesn't matter. My business is to eat whole foods and move my body. And then wherever my body ends up, it ends up. Um, I'm never going to be an Instagram star in the tiny bikini, but I do not want to be on my deathbed going, wow, I spent decades lamenting my body. I want to enjoy the body that I have every day. I want to love it and enjoy it because this is the only life I get. And this is the best body that I can have. And I'm going to let go of looking like an Instagram star.
0: Girl, you sent me your picture, and I was like, "Holy cow! This girl is gorgeous." Oh, and, thank you. Uh, too many people, you know, put too much value into the way they look on the outside, and not nearly enough on the way that they feel about themselves on the inside, and the way that they treat people. So, Absolutely,
1: and th- some people are really fortunate that they win what I call the genetic lottery which means that they're tall and they're thin and, you know, their, their facial composition is just perfection. And they end up on the runways because they won the genetic lottery. But that doesn't mean everyone else who
0: didn't is less than. Right, right. Yeah. And those people who won the genetic lottery, they could also have food addiction, right?
1: Oh, 100%. So food addiction comes in every shape, every size. Um, I've worked with people in treatment centers who are a very healthy weight and Their relationship with food is out of control and they're suffering consequences They do not want but they can't stop all their mental real estate is going to food And they're in a lot of pain even though physically they're you know, they look fine.
0: They look great so you went through all of this pain and chaos growing up and really trying to put a lot into yourself for personal growth. Um, And then you decided you're going to turn your pain into your purpose. And you went on to create the first residential treatment program for food addicts in Canada. Like this is not like for Milwaukee or Ohio. This is like all of Canada, right? That's huge. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I was pretty excited about that. So I I call myself a pioneer (laughs) um i created also ontario's first eight week outpatient program that i'm super proud of that's still uh, very much going strong we've had hundreds of patients go through it a lot of people what i get most excited about you know of course when you eliminate uh, processed foods people will lose weight, and that's wonderful uh what i get i get super excited when people can start reducing some medicines that's like wow Mm -hmm. and then my heart sings when people tell me that the mind chatter with food is gone Mm -hmm. so that mind chatter of should i have it shouldn't i did i eat too much did i eat too little can i have more should i second that constant mind chatter for them has been quieted then i know that they're safe they're free they're in the land of um, neutrality with food just returning food to its rightful purpose just to nourish our bodies honor our bodies and have neutrality with food so you enjoy it but it's not a drive like you're not using food to numb out pain relief you know to obliterate feelings none of that so that's when I get super excited and yeah in the first 28 day residential treatment program so lots of great work happening I also sit on the board of obesity Canada uh, really, a, an amazing organization st- started by Dr. Arya Sharman, and he's probably the top obesity doctor in Canada, maybe the world. And he brought together a network of professionals so that we can start looking at obesity as a very complex problem with no easy answer. Uh, there's so many variables that go into why somebody would be suffering with obesity. Um, and also, trying to end the stigma that goes along with it and the biases and offer people evidence based treatment plans because, as you know, another billion dollar industry is the diet industry, and there's tons of bad, bad information out there. So, you can imagine somebody, you know, sitting at home, not feeling comfortable talking to their doctors because doctors can sometimes be biased, mm-hmm. and then turning to Google for help
0: mm. and being overwhelmed and bombarded with so much bad information you know it really is overwhelming there's like 50 or more different words just for sugar and you know yeah. everybody thought okay well I'll just get light or low fat and they don't realize that low fat is actually worse for you because if they're taking something out they have to replace it with something else for yeah. it to taste better most likely that's sugar so and yeah uh, like for example it came out that, you know, soy is really bad for you. You really shouldn't have any soy. You definitely don't want to drink soy milk. So is that true or is that the dairy companies saying, don't right. you, no, don't have right. soy because you really should drink milk from a cow. That's much better from you than a plant. It's like it's very <laughs> overwhelming for people and they just don't know where to start. Yeah. So there's evidence to prove that every
1: single diet works. We actually have this evidence to prove that. However, here's the caveat. We have evidence to prove that 98% of all dieters fail. So what's going on? If all these diets work and 98% of people fail, something is going wrong. And so what I'm a firm believer is that you cannot treat obesity without treating the brain. That we need to start with the brain. We need to start with um, cognitive restructuring. We need to help people understand uh, permission thoughts and and resistance and also resilience because nobody is going to eat perfectly for the rest of their lives. We are human beings. I'm a human being, which means I don't act perfectly, speak perfectly, or eat perfectly. But what I need to do is be really resilient whenever I make a mistake, right? Um, So if I go off the rails with my eating, how fast can I get back on track? How resilient am I? Um instead of focusing on, you know, is this food better than that food? I mean if we keep it simple and I love simplicity, especially with eating, if it doesn't have sugar and it doesn't have flour, then I eat it. That's it. That's how simple I keep it. And I and I find it really inspiring to eat that way because I get to eat everything else. All I look for is sugar, refined sugar. I'm if it came from a tree, I'm okay with it. Um, you know, when I think of some of the diets out right now, like Keto, and Ugh. you can't have anything that grows under the ground. I'm like, yeah. Really? You can't eat an onion? What's wrong with an onion? What's wrong with a sweet but potato? This you better watch out for that set. spinach.
0: It's, it's going to be the death of you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It's kind of crazy. So I, I just keep it simple no refined sugar, no refined flour, and then I just eat everything else. And I'm happy. I'm happy that way.
0: Yeah. So one of my listeners um, I wanted me to ask you. You know, how does a specialist retrain a person's brain? What's the process?
1: Yes. So once you decide that you're going to follow any regime, and I always encourage people, there's no downside to giving up refined sugar. There's no doctor that's going to sit you down and say, I'm very concerned you haven't had a cupcake in six months, right? (laughs) There's no downside to giving up refined sugar or even refined flour, right? Nobody needs Wonder Bread. Um, What are you left with? what is the challenge the challenge boils down to cravings and urges that's all you're left with because there's a part of you that knows whole foods feel good it's the best option for you you feel the most vital you have the most energy when you eat whole foods but then what happens is you get a craving you get an urge and they're so overwhelming Um, So the cognitive restructuring happens with the awareness that you're actually having a craving. And you can look at a craving like a wave. And so a wave starts, right, and then it gains a lot of force and it peaks. And when it peaks, I would say that's the most painful. And that's usually when we give in. Um, But if we can ride the wave out, nothing in nature is permanent, including a craving. So how do we ride that wave until it passes? Um, I teach my clients that a craving is always a lie, always, 100%. There's never a good reason to eat refined sugar or refined flour. There isn't. There's never a good reason to have a cookie. There's never a good reason, right? And so I like to stop the thought really early on. The thought might be, oh, wouldn't it be nice? Or, you know what, you're super stressed and a chocolate bar is going to help. Or, you know what, the diet's going to start tomorrow. And if the diet's going to start tomorrow and you're going to eat salad for the rest of your life, you might as well have that pizza tonight. Right? Like, these are the lies that generally people tell themselves. Um, And so calling it that, that's a lie. And then the next step, I always say, you know what's happening in your brain? Try to understand. um, Addiction touches four parts of our brain. It touches our stress center. It touches our reward center. So these foods are high highly rewarding these are like unnaturally rewarding never in human history has the brain ever faced food being this rewarding it also touches the habit center right so that's like oh three o'clock I have something sweet I always have something sweet at three o'clock whether I'm hungry or not and then the euphoric recall center so that could be I'm in Naples. And the last time I was in Naples, I had the best pizza of my life, right? Mm. So all of these things could bring on a very strong craving or urge. So just becoming, bringing some awareness to that. So you're like, okay, so here's the craving. It's a lie. What happened? Oh, I know what happened. I got off at this subway station and they have Cinnabon and the aroma is filling and my brain is going nuts because now I want that Cinnabon. And then thirdly, Um, craving management is really anxiety management. So for a lot of people, a craving becomes, and I'm speaking from experience, a mental tug of war. So I used to be a professional dieter in my twenties. So every Monday morning I would start on my diet, my new crazy diet. And then by two o'clock I'd have my first craving, right? Didn't last very long. And the mental, uh, tug of war would begin. So one part of my brain would say, you know what? Just have a one piece. Don't have the whole cookie. Have like half and you'll be fine. And the other part of my brain would say, no, you know if you have that cookie, you're going to finish the box. Don't do it. And the other part of my brain would be, no, no, it's going to be different. You're on this diet. You'll get right back on the diet. And the other part of my brain would be like, please, like your weight is killing us. You can't do this. And back and forth, back and forth. And the only way I could shut that tug of war down was to eat. I would just eat it and get it over with. So understanding that craving management is that anxiety management because you're unsure of what you're going to do. You don't feel confident or calm yet. I always recommend people take three huge cleansing breaths. Uh, You can do that anywhere. Nobody needs to be aware that you're taking these huge breaths. And what that does is it really oxygenates your brain. It gives your brain a chance to make a better decision. So that's part, a very simple way of looking at cognitive restructuring. You, You realize that all you're facing is craving. That's it and know that a craving is always a lie. figure out what's happening in my brain. Is it, oh, is it because it's three o'clock and I always have something sweet at three o'clock? And then thirdly, adding those really deep cleansing breaths so that you can make a better decision.
0: You know, I feel like the majority of society has some sort of addiction. And I've always had sympathy for people who with food addictions, because it's not like a a drug addict has to survive, you know, by doing drugs. But a food addict has to face their demon on a daily basis just for simple survival.
1: 100%. Yeah,
0: we often say it's like
1: taking the tiger out of the cage three times a day and then we hope we can get the tiger back in. (laughs) Because sometimes just the act of eating can be triggering, right? Or you might have an apple and there's some sweetness in it and your brain goes, oh, sweetness, more and more and more. Go see what else you can find. Do
0: you... Do you ever see people who are trying to maintain that or corral that uh, tiger, the food addiction, and in doing so, they create a different addiction?
1: Well, sometimes I have seen people put down the food quite successfully, and so when their brain is searching for maybe just a hit or just to feel a little relief or a high, they might say to themselves, you know what, I'm not going to eat, but I'll go shopping. And then they don't do that once, twice. They do that a lot of times. Then suddenly shopping becomes an issue, or maybe it's gambling. You know what? I'm I'm gonna have a reasonable dinner, and then I'm gonna go past. You know, usually I would sit on the couch and I would do nighttime eating, but I think tonight I'll pass my time at the casino and I'll still get that buzz from the casino, and again, you don't do that once, twice, but hundreds of times, you can actually create a new addiction, then your brain's like, okay, we're not getting a high from food, we'll get our high from shopping, or the casino, or maybe a bottle of wine. So it's very easy to transfer over to other addictions if you're not careful. And, you know, once you put your drug down, whatever that drug is, now it's time to start working on the drivers that brought you to this addiction right? And sometimes people don't want to face those drivers. So instead they'll do the shopping or the drinking or the casino, but that's actually the time to say, okay, I'm not going to use food. What what do I, what's going on here? Is it that I'm not good at relationships? Is it that I don't know how to manage my emotions? Is it that my job's too dysfunctional? I need to start cleaning up my life so that I don't need to use anything.
0: Do you have any recommendation for those people that you know? I mean, I guess anybody that's going to come to you has an addictive personality but if, when you start seeing that it's not just the food
1: yeah I, I see I don't necessarily believe that there is an addictive personality it's, it's so interesting that you say this because my sister brought this up this weekend and she's like oh but they all have addictive personalities right and I didn't know how to answer her in the moment and I've really actually just considered that these last few days um no I you know that's kind of I think we need to assume that everyone at their core is a good person and everyone at their core wants to thrive and flourish in this life. So addiction for me is really brain-based thing happening. Whenever you ingest something that overwhelms your reward center. So, you know, cocaine can do that. Alcohol can do that. And food can do that. Um, and then you, um, you start to form a habit around it. So now you realize, ooh, that felt really, really good. And you think there's, you know, there's people who say, that was really good. I don't want to do that again for a long time. And then there's other people like, that was really good. I need to do that right now again and again and again and again and a, fab, and a habit forms. So if somebody is, you know, then develops another addiction, it's really the same model. You need to be abstinent from your drug, you need to kind of clean up the drivers so it's really the same template
0: no matter what the addiction is so if somebody's struggling with this right now and they're listening to this podcast and they know that they have an addiction with food or they're by listening to you speak they're starting to realize that they have an addiction is there um is there a healthcare provider a a specific type of healthcare provider that they should be looking for or places or phone numbers to call what do you recommend
1: for sure so i am a food addiction counselor um so definitely you can look me up my uh, uh my website is sandraalia.com that's s-a-n-d-r-a-e-l-i-a.com and my programs are online now so Uh, I've been able to offer them to people across the world. We meet every week on Wednesday nights, either in person if you live in Ontario, but, you know, I understand this podcast goes all over North America. If you can't come and meet me in person, then you can do it over Zoom. So Zoom is very similar to Skype, but the real um, success factor is having a community of people that you're tapped into and you get support every single week. We cannot do this alone. So my program is built on three pillars. The first pillar is eliminate your drugs, your addictive trigger foods. The second pillar is to be tapped into a community of people trying to do exactly what you're trying to do. And the third pillar is called spirituality and mindfulness because addictive eating is mindless eating. So one of those antidotes is mindfulness and also understanding that inside of all of us is this perfect place of strength of calm where we rage at no one where we fear nothing compulsion does not live there it's this center of magnificence that we were all born with and so just tapping into that place living from that place selecting food from that place and so these three pillars in my program i call them a three-legged stool and if you ignore one of the legs, it's going to be very difficult to stay up. So um, that's my program in a nutshell. And again, it's online. So anybody in the world can join.
0: That's awesome. That is fantastic that you work with anybody all over the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do one-on-one sessions. And I also do retreats. I have one coming up in May. It's a five-day retreat in northern Ontario, which is quite beautiful. We have wonderful lakes and forests and it's a super bespoke um, event. It's 5 days. I select 14 people. I make sure that I have the right combination of people, the right so that people get the right treatment that they need. We have daily visits from a staff who's going to teach us how to make these foods delicious and easy to prepare that don't have refined sugar or refined flour. Every afternoon we'll have a world expert give a talk. We'll have a yogi come in. We'll do nature walks, bonfires. It's a really beautiful event. Oh,
0: my yeah. gosh. I want to go. <laughs> yeah, you're more than welcome. Sounds <laughs> awesome. You know, some of the best things in my life have come from me getting outside of my comfort zone and meeting new people and finding a tribe of people that are like me. And that are like me. And so when you get away from the people who, like, for example, I'm sure you had to, to a point, remove yourself from your mother because her addiction was hard for you to, on your addiction. And so when you have like-minded people that you're surrounding yourself with, you're more successful.
1: For sure. For sure. And um, I had many therapists tell me that I should probably um, cut my mother out of my life. I chose not to go down that route simply because Some of my core values is to be a good family member, a good daughter, a good sister. Um, So what I did with my mom was I created boundaries. So the boundaries, what they allowed me to do was decide how much time, effort, money I would give her, and then I would walk away. So that way I could fulfill my value of being a good daughter, but also not give to the point where I had nothing left. So boundaries really helped save
0: um, that relationship. That's wonderful. Have you been able to help your mom?
1: No, she passed away uh, 12 years ago, but we were able to redefine our relationship and I came to complete peace um, before she passed away. But she passed away from food addiction and obesity. I'm sorry
0: to hear that, but that's wonderful that you guys were able to work through that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, Sandra, we're going to change it up a little bit. Because this is always a very serious kind of show, we're talking about real life stuff. I always want to end it with a, you know, change the pace a little bit. So, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you really off topic questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, who is your celebrity crush? Oh, Bradley Cooper. Oh, did I you see? Of him. A Star is Born. <laughs>
1: Oh my God. And then the Emmy perform or the Oscar performance with
0: Lady Gaga. That was oh so good. Well, I so missed good. that. And I was just on a flight um, this weekend and I saw that movie for the first time. And I was like, I can't believe people are around me because like my throat hurts. I'm trying to hold my cries in so hard. <laughs> oh, I know. It's so good. Oh, it's so great. All right. So who's your most unlikely celebrity crush?
1: unlikely celebrity crush,
0: what do you mean like somebody that i wouldn't like? Well, okay, for example, um i love the guy from King of Queens.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> um <laughs> I see. Let me think who would be my unlikely crow? Oh my god, I Howard Stern. Ugh. really? <laughs> I, don't, I don't I don't like his energy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. All right, so do you have a hidden talent? Um I think dancing. Yeah. So I'm taking I'm 46 and I'm
1: finally taking dance lessons because I've always wanted to my whole life
0: and oh, I really you. love it. Awesome. What kind yeah. of dancing? Burlesque. Oh. I find it to be really um Girl. powerful. Yeah. Are you dancing in a martini glass? Yeah. <laughs> I'm dancing in a studio with private lessons where oh, that's nobody. Awesome. Can watch me. Okay, so are you guys never going to perform? This is just for, the the class. Um,
1: well, my instructor and I have I had many discussions about this because she says as a burlesque dancer you have to tassels, and I refuse to do that. So, oh. I have to, we have to work something out. We can negotiate <laughs> costumes, and if she will allow me to have. Uh, more modesty than I will get on a stage but I will not strip down to tassels well, <laughs> unless they're massive tassels
0: <laughs> I thought that um you wore corsets I mean that's what Christine Aguilera wore and <laughs> I know I know but she my my teacher I
1: love her she's very uh like old traditional what it actually means to be a burlesque dancer oh so we're talking about from like the 40s and 50s and so she's very true to the art
0: well at least she's working with you because I think that would be my big no to <laughs> work <We're> tassels anywhere <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man mountains or the beach uh,
1: mountains
0: yeah uh, where, where's your favorite place
1: Um, I went hiking in Wicklow Mountains in Ireland, and it was uh, truly one of the most magical hikes I've ever been on.
0: Mm, It sounds beautiful. If there was one message you could leave with the world, what would it be?
1: Love yourself unconditionally. We are all searching for unconditional love, but we cannot give it and we cannot receive it. Until we have it for ourselves, and there, and and you are
0: perfectly deserving of it. Beautiful. I couldn't have said that better myself. Oh, what a pleasure! <laughs> so you're creating the smile effect every single day through your work and just by being you. What's something that makes you smile? My daughter. She is. Uh, I always say my daughter is proof that
1: dreams come true i had her later in life i had her when i was 38 years old and i always say god bless me with sophia and i will be grateful
0: for the rest of my days oh they are such just a blessing aren't they yeah. they can be such saviors in their own way i tell my girls all the time that they saved me from myself yeah and
1: and teachers
0: of unconditional love
1: both ways like she just loves me so yes. unconditionally <laughs> And I've never experienced that before in my life. And, and of course my love for her is so pure and uncon- like there's nothing that she could ever do. That would change the way I feel about her.
0: Yeah. It's beautiful. All right. So what do you have planned for 2019? I know that you've got the retreat coming up, but what, what else are you doing? I'm going to be writing my book finally. So I'm super excited about that. I'm just
1: in the planning stages right now, but I am, I've, i've been for a couple of years people meet me and say what's the name of your book so have you written your book where can i find your book And there is no book um so i feel like it was the universe's little nudge like it's time it's time it's time and the stars have aligned and so that is what i would like to have
0: done before the year is out that's awesome and do you have a name for it yet or is that still to come to come, but it'll definitely about be about my
1: personal journey and addictive eating, destructive eating, uh, something along those
0: lines. Awesome. Well, Sandra, thank you for being true to yourself and not being afraid of how people would respond to your honesty. I'm sure it hasn't been an easy road, but um, nothing worth living for is easy, so it's worth it. And you're not only healing yourself, but helping countless people from their own inner demons. So thank you so much for being so open and being here.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.